so good to see you guys. Thanks for coming out today. Thanks for tuning in online. However you're participating today, I'm so glad that you could be a part of our current teaching series called Christ the King, where we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. Friends, our text today is Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. And in these verses, our theme is corrupted Judaism. Again, that's corrupted Judaism. If you happen to know your church history, you know that back in the 1500s, the Catholic Church veered way off course. They made church officials a higher authority than Scripture. They taught that one could earn his salvation by performing good works. They required celibacy from their priests, even though God had instituted marriage and said, be fruitful and multiply. And lastly, they began to sell what was called indulgences, where you could ostensibly pay money to escape the temporal consequences of your sin. And it was because of such corruption that God raised up a reformer named Martin Luther, a German theologian who God appointed to confront the corruption. And Luther came up with what was basically 95 things that were wrong with the Catholic Church. And he posted them where they could be seen publicly. And friends, it was his confrontation of that corruption that led uh, to what is arguably the greatest reformation in all of church history. Well, what I want you to understand today is that the need for reformation is actually nothing new. Uh, he, he wasn't the first one to bring reform. You see, by the time of Christ, Judaism, just like Catholicism, had become corrupt. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were teaching people the wrong way to be saved. They were teaching people, you are saved simply by virtue of the fact that you physically descend from Abraham. Now, they didn't teach that you needed to have the faith that Abraham had, the faith that was the result of why God uh, 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 made him righteous in his sight. No, they weren't worried about uh, telling people they need to have the same faith that Abraham had. No, they were saying you're safe simply by virtue of the fact that you descend from him physically. They also taught the people that they would be saved simply by having God's law. Hey, it's not so important that you follow and obey God's law, but just in having it, you are safe. And finally, they taught the people that they would be saved simply because they were circumcised. Now, circumcision represented a holy life, but no emphasis was placed on holiness, only on undergoing the ceremony. And in teaching that salvation came by doing these things, they replaced the scriptural teaching of salvation by faith and replaced it with their own system of salvation by works. And it was because of such corruption within Judaism that God raised up a different reformer named Jesus, who was from Nazareth. And when Jesus began his public ministry, he confronted the corruption of his day. 
And he basically, like Luther, pointed out 95 things wrong with Judaism. Number one, Jesus told the people that the religious system created by their leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, would not save them. Number two, Jesus continually corrected the teaching of the religious leaders. Remember when we studied the Sermon on the Mount for several months? Jesus came and said, you have heard that it was said. And this was a reference to the teaching of the religious leaders. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in this way and with this format, he continually corrected the teaching of the religious leaders. He came and corrected their teaching on murder, their teaching on adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love, and the list just goes on. Number three, Jesus called out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, indicting them for performing their various acts of religious devotion, such as praying and fasting and giving to the poor, not to honor God, no, to be seen by men and to be praised by them. And Jesus just called them out for that hypocrisy. Number four, Jesus totally replaced the religious leader system of prayer that had become little more than mindless resuscitation with his own system, instructing the people, don't pray like them, pray then like this. And then Jesus gave a program to follow for a meaningful time of prayer with God. Finally, number five, Jesus warned the people against the religious leaders, telling them, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but who inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, Jesus came when he began preaching, telling the people, you might view your religious leaders as shepherds, those who wear sheep's clothing. That was the shepherd. You might view them as shepherds who mean you well. But in reality, your religious leaders are ravenous wolves who will do you much harm. And the harm that they did was a spiritual harm because, again, they taught the wrong way to be saved. So God raised up Jesus as a reformer to confront the corruption of his day. But here's the deal. The people of Jesus's day did not perceive that Jesus was there on mission from God. So the people were just perplexed by Jesus. They knew that in demonstrating his power over disease and nature and demons and sin, that he was a man sent from God. But they were so confused as to why then Jesus didn't align himself with the religious leaders. They just assumed that if someone came who was truly sent from God, he would align with the religious leaders throughout the land of Israel. He would align with their teaching. He would align with their way. He would align with their tradition. And this was just the exact opposite of what Jesus was doing. So they were mystified by Jesus. To them, Jesus was an enigma inside a a mystery wrapped in a riddle. Okay, they just could not make sense of him. Why are you so different? Why do you teach different? Why are your traditions different? Why are your ways different? Why, Why is your ministry night and day different than the ministry of our religious leaders. And so, because they were confused, they sent representatives, their religious leaders, to Jesus demanding that he explain himself. And friends, that's what we see in our text today. 
Today, as we study through Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17, what we're going to see is three different questions posed to Jesus. Two that are explicit in the text and one that is implicit in the text. And Jesus is going to answer all three questions in order to give the people a framework for why he was confronting the religious leaders and for why his ministry looked nothing like theirs. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. All right, here we go. Here's the first question. This question is asked by the Pharisees. And the question is not directed to Jesus himself. The question is directed at Jesus' disciples. And here was their question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? All right, this was something the religious leaders did not do. But Jesus did so. And they were confused by Jesus' actions. So they sent their representatives. They sent the religious leaders to ask Jesus, through his disciples, why do you do stuff like this? You see, the religious leaders hated sinners, all right? They actually grouped them into categories. There were the lesser sinners, and then there were the greater sinners, and you know, these ones just committed little sins, and these ones committed big sins, but if you were classified as a sinner, period, the religious leaders hated you. They wanted nothing to do with you. They, start, they stayed as far away from you as possible, <laughs> sinner, you know, stay away. And they certainly did not sit down to associate with you, to dine with you, to spend time with you, uh, to go into your home, or anything along those lines. But friend, this this was the polar opposite of how Jesus behaved towards those he came for. Jesus came for sinners. He came to save sinners from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death. I mean, he just, he loved them, and he knew that this was why he was born. In fact, take a look at what the angel of the Lord said to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, in reference to his wife. The angel said this to, to Joseph, she, Mary, your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for, meaning because, He will save his people from their sins. As I mentioned last week, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. So even his name speaks to the purpose for which he came to earth. And that being the case, after proving his ability to forgive sin, which we covered last week, Jesus now shows the extent of who can be forgiven by interacting with and calling one of the most notorious sinners in the entire town to follow him in discipleship. And then he accepts a dinner invitation to have dinner with this man and all his sinful friends. We pick up reading in verse 9. Take a look. As Jesus went on from there, as he relocated from one part of Capernaum uh, to the part that was by the sea where the tax collectors would collect taxes, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, friends, we have to understand The religious leaders hated sinners in general, but they especially hated tax collectors. 
because to them, tax collectors, they were traitors in that they worked for Rome, even though they were Jews. And they were also extortioners in that they took advantage of the people, overcharging them for taxes. And through this corruption, they had become fabulously wealthy, and there was nothing the people could do about it because tax collectors had the military backing of Rome. So the tax collectors were literally the most despised people in all the land of Israel. But here in our passage, Jesus invites one such despised tax collector to follow him in full-time ministry to serve as one of his disciples. And again, then he accepts a dinner invitation to eat with this sinner as well as with all of his friends. No matter how much I might try to explain it, I really can't do a good enough job sharing with you what a break this was from traditional Judaism. It was unconscionable in the eyes of the religious leaders. And it was unconscionable in the eyes of the regular people because the religious leaders taught them, oh, we do this to sinners. We don't associate with them. So the religious leaders come to Jesus and they demand an explanation. Why does your teacher do stuff like this? That's what they want to know. Now, Jesus overhears the question being asked to the religious leaders. And at this point, the dinner party must have been over. And so Jesus hears what's going on and he decides that he is going to answer for himself. And so Jesus explains his actions as follows. Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, friends, in our passage last week, Jesus established himself as a forgiver. And so what he's saying here is this, just as it's expected of a doctor to be around sick people, so it's expected of a forgiver to be around sinful people who are in need of being forgiven. And in saying this, Jesus is not only speaking to why he came to earth to save sinners from the penalty God's law demands for sin, which is death. He also was calling out the religious leaders uh, for being the spiritual quacks that they were. Jesus was saying, you guys are doctors who refuse to be around sick people. But Jesus isn't done with them. As scathing as that was, he's not done with them. Here's how Jesus continues. He says, guys, I, I got a task for you. Take a look, Matthew 9, 13a, the first part of the verse. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. And then Jesus quotes from what you and I know as Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, the religious leaders, oh, they love to go through the religious rituals and the religious ceremonies, but they hated sinners and had no interest in showing mercy to them or trying to get them to repent. And in this way, they showed themselves to be nothing like their father in heaven. Now, it's really significant uh, that Jesus here quotes from the book of Hosea. And to understand this quote, we really have to understand uh, the greater context of the book of Hosea. So let me just break it down for you really simply. The book of Hosea covers two primary things. Number one, 
It covers God's um, great, it covers Israel's sinfulness. And then number two, it covers God's loyal love for his sinful people. In the book, God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute who would be unfaithful to him. And he's commanded nonetheless to pursue her and love her despite her sinfulness. And friends, it was all symbolic. Hosea represented God. The prostitute represented Israel. And though Israel was married to God, she was unfaithful to him. But despite her sinfulness, God loved her and pursued her and tried to get her to repent. So in quoting the book of Hosea, uh, Jesus was pointing out that he was just like God the Father in the Old Testament. He was pursuing and loving sinners. And secondly, Jesus was pointing out to them, you are nothing like God the Father in the Old Testament. All you care about is ceremony. All you care about is religious ritual. You care nothing for showing mercy to sinners. So understand, friends, this was a scathing rebuke. So Jesus is like, you want to know why I'm not following in the tradition of the religious leaders? You want to know why my ministry uh, is doing a big break from, from traditional Judaism? It's because traditional Judaism has become corrupted. He's saying, you have gone astray. And you don't care for the one thing that God truly cares about, which is lost people. So Jesus says, in effect, you think this is bad? Well, let me tell you what you can expect more of in the future. You can expect more of the same. And this is Jesus's meaning in the latter part of verse uh, 13 when he says this, I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. So Jesus is saying, hey, you can expect to see more of the same. So friends, are you you with me here before I move on to the second question? People are confused by Jesus. Jesus, what your actions, they make no sense to us. Why aren't you in line with all the religious leaders? Why do you break from all their traditions? And Jesus' answer in, in a nutshell is because what they practice is a corrupted version of Judaism. It is not the true way of God. It is a corruption of the true way of God. So I am not following with the corruption. All right, let's move on now to question number two. The people were not only confused about why Jesus was hanging out with sinners, they were also confused about why Jesus didn't practice the tradition of fasting in the way that the religious leaders did. So now it's some of John John the Baptist's disciples who come to Jesus with the second question uh, related to their areas of confusion. And it's this, take a look, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. They come to Jesus and they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus, again, why does your ministry look so different from that of our religious leaders? Now, friends, the answer is simple. Here's the deal. Back in Leviticus 16, God commanded that the Jews should fast. They were to fast once a year from sunup to sundown on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Now, the Jews still celebrate this today. In fact, uh, Tuesday, October 4th, Tuesday, this Tuesday, is Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it's a day for mourning over sin. 
And since they were mourning over sin, and since fasting is appropriate for people who are mourning, God commanded that on that day, and that day alone, the Jews should fast. Well, the religious leaders took that command to fast one day a year, and they established the bi-weekly tradition of fasting. In other words, they would fast twice a week. And of course, they would do it on the two market days that happened each week. And this way, they would have a crowd to show off in front of. Now, were they doing it to mourn over sin? Were they doing it to honor God? No way. They were doing it for men to be seen by them and to be praised by them. So naturally, Jesus did not get on board with the Pharisees' tradition of fasting. He wanted nothing to do with that kind of fasting, with the corrupted version of fasting. So Jesus didn't practice that himself, nor did he require that of his disciples. So when the disciples of John came to him asking why he and his disciples didn't prioritize fasting like the religious leaders, take a look. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. So Jesus says basically, would it be appropriate to be mourning and crying and fasting at a wedding? No, a wedding is a celebratory event. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not Yom Kippur. It's not the Day of Atonement. It's not time to be fasting and mourning and weeping over sin. Jesus is saying right now, it's the time for celebration. Because the great king that God has promised across the ages to send into the world has finally come and is preaching the good news of the kingdom. That sinners can be saved from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death. And he's saying this is cause not for mourning, this is cause for celebration. Jesus says, oh, one day I'll be taken away from my disciples. And of course, here is a veiled reference to his crucifixion. And Jesus says, when I'm taken away, they will mourn. And when they are mourning, it will be appropriate for them to fast. And that's exactly what Jesus' followers did once he was taken away. But right now, the great king that God had promised to send into the world, the great king who was also savior, was sent into the world and was proclaiming the glorious news that sinners could be saved from the penalty for sin. And Jesus says, this is cause for celebration. So you want to know why I'm not going along with the tradition of the religious leaders? Let me tell you in a word. It's because of the corruption. They don't even know the purpose of fasting. So why in the world would I follow suit with them? They don't even understand what it represents. They don't understand what it means. They don't understand how often they're even commanded to do it. They're doing it wrong. They're doing it in addition to God's word. They're doing it for the praise of men to be seen by them. And I just want nothing to do with that. So that is why my ministry looks so different from theirs. They have taken the true way of God and they have corrupted it. And I want nothing to do with such corruption. All right, here's our third and final question presented to Jesus. Now, remember I said two are explicit in the text, meaning they actually appear in the text. And then I said, but one is implicit. Well, now we're looking at the implicit question. 
In other words, it's not written out specifically in the text. But friends, just because it's not written out in the text does not mean that it's not there. It is. And we know it is because of the way that Jesus speaks to the question, even if it's not written in the text. So here is that third and final uh, implicit question. The people want to know this. Jesus, can we blend your teaching and your ways with that of our religious leaders? You see, despite how corrupt Judaism had become, uh, it was familiar, (laughs) It was comfortable. It's what they knew. It's what they had grown up with. It's what their parents practiced, and it's what their friends observed too. So they really didn't want to give it up. Yet, they also liked Jesus. He had demonstrated power over disease, and power over nature, and power over demons, and power over sin. So they knew that he was clearly a person sent from God. So they wanted to align with him too without giving up what they had come to know. And that which was so familiar to them, which was their corrupted version of Judaism. So the question on their brains, even if it was unspoken, was this. Jesus, can we blend your teachings and ways with those of our religious leaders? Jesus, can we adopt them both? Jesus, can we just take what you teach and add it to the system that we already have, that we already know, and that we're already familiar with? And friends, this is the question that Jesus answers in verses 16 to 17. So again, we know the question is there because Jesus gives an answer to it. And his answer is in verses 16 to 17. Take a look. Jesus says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." Here, Jesus shares two illustrations which were entirely familiar uh, to those to whom he first shared them with, but really aren't so familiar to us. So I need to explain because we live 2,000 years after the fact. We live in this culture. They lived in that culture. Uh, Things were different then than they are now. So, So again, we need to explain these two illustrations. So the first illustration is that of putting an unshrunk patch on a pair of clothing, which is something no one would do in that day. Here in America, most of us don't patch our clothes because the Industrial Revolution has made the production of clothing so uh, incredibly inexpensive that nowadays when we rip our clothes, typically most of us will just go buy new ones. But friends, in Jesus' day, that was not the case. In the time of Christ, clothing was expensive. So when people would tear them, they would go ahead and patch them up. Now, in the time of Christ, clothing was made of wool or linen, both of which would shrink when washed. So imagine you're a first century Jew, and you're working your land, and you rub up against a pricker bush, and it rips part of your clothing. Well, when you went home that day, you would go ahead and grab a piece of pre-shrunk cloth, and then you would use it to sew up the tear. But friends, if you grabbed a piece of cloth that wasn't pre-shrunk and used it to patch the tear, the first time you washed everything, uh, it would pull away as it shrunk and it would create a tear that was even greater than the original one that needed to be repaired. 
And so the point is this. Nobody would use an unshrunk patch on a pair of old clothes that had been washed many times and had already shrunk. That would be foolish. It's just something people did not do. All right, now to the illustration of the new wine in the old wineskins. Today we store wine in bottles, right? But in the time of Christ, they stored wine in wineskins, which were animal skins. They would cut off the skin of the animal, they would sew it all up, and they would have that new wine put in the wineskin of the animal. And new wine would ferment. And as it fermented inside the sewed up wineskin, gas and pressure would build inside the wineskin. And it was fine if you put new wine in new wineskins because a new wineskin had the elasticity in order to handle the pressure put on it by the gases that came from the fermentation of the wine. But friends, if you went and took an old wineskin that had lost its elasticity and you went and put into it new wine, which would ferment and have gases that would build up and would stretch the wineskin, the wineskin would explode and you would lose the wineskin and the precious wine. And so nobody would do that either. Nobody would put an unshrunk patch on an old set of clothes, and no one would put new wine in an old wineskin. It's just not something people did. That would be foolish. So here's what Jesus is saying. In the same way that it would be foolish to use an unshrunk patch on an old pair of clothes, and in the same way that it would be foolish to put new wine in old wineskins, it would be equally foolish to try and blend the religious leaders corrupted Judaism with the pure and true way of God. Doing so would only taint the true way of God. Jesus was saying this, if you put an unshrunk patch on an old pair of clothes, it destroys the clothes. If you put new wine into old wineskins, it destroys the skin and the wine. Likewise, if you put my way together with the ways of the corrupted religious leaders, it'll destroy any chance you have of getting to heaven. Jesus was saying, my way and their way are wholly incompatible. They are like water and wine. They do not mix. And if you were to try to mix the two, it would end in destruction, which is a reference to eternal damnation. So Jesus warns the people who might try to combine the true way of God with the corrupted way of Judaism there in the first century under the corrupt leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we see that like Catholicism in the 16th century, first century Judaism had become corrupt. And just as God had raised up Martin Luther in the 16th century, so he raised up Jesus in the first century to confront the corruption, which is exactly what Jesus did all throughout his ministry. Now, when Christians today hear a message like this, some mistakenly respond as follows. Oh, thank God, I'm so glad I live in the 21st century so that I can avoid all that corruption. Oh, that was back then. This is now. Oh, thank God I live now, not then. <laughs> Friends, don't think that. I hate to burst your bubble, but there's probably more corruption today in Christianity than there even was back then in Judaism. 
There's probably more corruption today in the 21st century Christianity than there even was in the 16th century in the Catholic Church. Christianity has become so corrupt. This is one of the reasons we've just more and more and more as a church, we've just been studying through the Word of God. Because corruption veers us off the straight and narrow path. When you force yourself just to get in the word and go through it word by word, phrase by phrase, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, you you, you can't avoid the true way of God. Oh, Christianity has been corrupted, my friends. And corrupt Christianity is no Christianity at all. So what we need to do is we actually need to test ourselves to see if our Christianity has become corrupted. And from this point forward, I don't want to talk anymore about what it was like for the Jews in the first century. I don't want to talk anymore about what it was like for the Catholics in the 16th century. From this point forward, we're talking about what it's like for us today. And I'm going to give you three different ways you can know whether or not your Christianity has become corrupt just as Judaism was back in the first century. Here we go. Number one, we know our Christianity is corrupted if we avoid being around sinners. The religious leaders of Jesus' day aimed to steer clear of sinful people. They were doctors who did not want to be around the sick, which was just totally backwards. But there is a form of Christianity, and it's a false form of Christianity that does the same thing today. Some people, like the religious leaders of the first century, they they just want to stay in a Christian bubble. Let me just only interact with and be around everyone who thinks like me, behaves like me, looks like me, and if anyone doesn't, stay away from the sinner. And that is corrupt Christianity. Some people come home from work every day and they just gripe and complain and bemoan the fact that every day they just have to be around all these sinful people. Do you know God has you exactly where he wants you? Because in every sector of society, he wants salt and light for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. Stop begrudging the reality that God has you in a sinful family or, or that he's put sinful neighbors next to you or, or that you, your coworkers, they're all, they're all sinful people. Well, praise the Lord because if they weren't, you wouldn't have a job to do. God's put you there to reach those people. But if you have this attitude, ooh, stay away from the sinner. I eat lunch by myself every day. I don't interact with those people. Well, shame on you if that's you. Jesus would be having lunch with those sinful people because he came to help people far from God be reconciled to their maker. And that's exactly what he expects from us. Number two, we know our Christianity is corrupted. Secondly, uh, if we enjoy religious ritual more than sharing the gospel. All the religious leaders, they loved Yom Kippur. They loved their religious ceremonies, such as uh, circumcision. They loved celebrating the Passover. They loved the seven annual feasts. They loved religious ritual and ceremony. They loved going to synagogue throughout the week. They loved going to the uh, temple several times throughout the year. Oh, they loved their ceremony. They loved their ritual. 
but they did not love uh, sharing their faith. They did not love helping sinners get right with their maker. But many of us today are the same way. Oh, I love coming to church on Sunday. I love being a part of my small group. I love being on my serving team. Oh, I love religious ceremonies. Oh, and we have a baptism Sunday. Oh, it's just the best. Oh, I love taking communion. I love my ritual. I love my ceremony. I love my traditions. But I don't love sharing my faith. Sharing your faith, that's a private thing. Let me just keep that to myself. That's what our culture says to do. Well, friends, you're right that that's what our culture says to do, but that is not what our Christ says to do. Christ means Messiah. That's not what our Messiah says to do. He says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. The word preach simply means proclaim, and that's why we are here. Number three, last one. We know our Christianity has become corrupt if we try to blend dead faith with saving faith. Simply put, people with dead faith do not share their faith. People with saving faith do. I just can't say it any more simple than that. That's the reality. Sadly, there's a version of Christianity here in America that says you can be a Christian and not share your faith. But friends, that is literally our entire purpose on this earth. And to say you can be a Christian without sharing your faith, it's just plain heresy. A Christian's entire purpose on earth is to glorify God by seeking and saving the lost, which cannot be done without sharing the good news about Jesus. This is why at least three times a year we have a surveyor's course seminar after third service where we teach you how to share your faith. Friends, there is a false version of Christianity. It's a cultural Christianity where you go through all the motions, but you're really not in line or in tune with what God's actually trying to do on this earth, which is seek and save the lost. And Matthew today through this text, God today to take it one step higher. It's not me calling us out of corrupted Christianity. It's not the apostle Matthew who wrote our text that's calling out, us out of corrupted Christianity. It's actually God himself. He's using what Matthew wrote and he's using me as his herald, as his communicator to share the message. But it's God who's calling us out of corrupted Christianity to get on that straight and narrow path. Oh, the way is broad that leads to destruction, but the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. And God's word says only a few find it, but friends, let that be us. God's calling us out of the corruption. So the invitation today is this. Here's your last fill in the blank. God's calling us to forsake corrupted Christianity and adopt the Christianity of Jesus for it's only the Christianity of Jesus that saves. The cultural Christianity of our day, it does not save. Only Jesus' Christianity saves. So the call today is then to turn in faith to Jesus. And for everyone who wants to do that, I want to invite you to join me in our closing prayer. Those of you online, everyone here in person, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? 
And maybe you'd say something like this in your heart to God. Say, Heavenly Father, I just want to acknowledge before you today that that just as there was true and false Judaism and true and false Catholicism, God, I want to acknowledge that there is true and false Christianity as well. And today I commit to forsake what is false and adopt what is true. I have no desire to practice a corrupted version of Christianity because today I learned that corrupted Christianity has never and will never save anyone. So today I commit to follow Jesus in discipleship. I commit to learn the words and ways of Jesus and to live them out as best I can. Please forgive me for going my own way and for all my other sins too. Though my sins are many today, and though today could be a time for mourning, God, today is actually a time for celebration, just like at a wedding. Because today's the day where you are pardoning my sins because I'm trusting Jesus by faith to pay the penalty that your law demands for sin for me. So God, I do celebrate in that reality. I'm so thankful for it. And God, I give you praise for providing a savior. God, as I now set out to live out pure Christianity from this day forward, I pray that you would give me your very own heart for the lost. Help me to view life as a game whose goal is to leverage time, talent, and treasure to make the biggest impact on this world for Christ as I can. I pray for your help, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. We would love to connect with you even more, so be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.